Hello, Kevin. Yes. How are you, my friend? This is Ken. Hey, Ken. How you doing? Good, buddy. Really appreciate your taking time to talk with me. I'm a big fan of your work. Followed it all the way back to whole earth and oh whole earth oh yeah, yeah man oh yeah <laughs> and wired of course out of control new rules technium with a lot of appreciation great admiration thank you well You're- my pleasure your insights are central and right at the crossroads of humanity spirituality technology economics evolution and so on oh dear well um i'm sorry but i'm just Trying my best to make sense of the world, so as, <laughs> as, as you are as well. So um, indeed, looking, I'm looking forward to our conversation. What I thought we might do is, there's as a you know a prolific producer of ideas, there's any number of ways we could do this thing. But I thought one of the simplest and maybe most fun for both of us would be for me to take some of your blog writings on the technium and read sections of that and then pause, and then we can uh, discuss the central ideas and insights in each of those sections. Okay. How's that? Would you try that for a start? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's start with one on the cosmic origins of extropy, which I thought was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And it starts, technology is the visible extension of an archaic force which runs up in time while the universe runs down. Technology is the latest chapter in a continuous story that builds up order, structure, freedom, possibilities, and good against the inescapable black drain of entropy. While the universe cools and dies, the spreading differential of life and technology warms up a greater portion of cosmic coldness. The rising flow, called extropy, enlivens our current technology on Earth, but was first birthed in the unlikely genesis of the universe 12 billion years ago. In that way, all machines trace their origins to the Big Bang. Technology is a cosmic force. That's a really kind of stunning view. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that that's also a minority view. Yeah. Um, and not too many people are combining words cosmic and technology together in the same sentence. Right. So um, I am heartened that you appreciate the sensibility, but it, it ain't mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a, my own belief about technology is that it, it basically goes all the way up and all the way down. And seeing this view is in consonance with my own. Um, I realize we're both a little bit of mavericks on this side of the street, your blog continues, as primeval matter swirled into galaxies, extropy rose as stuff gathered into life and finally unleashed its full power as self-consciousness, mindfulness. Extropy is now unfolding the technium, the autonomous planetary technological system created by our minds. It is this awakening sphere of technology which is so altering our planet, shaping our history, and disturbing the universe. So it really is that view puts technology really central to the universe and to being human, doesn't it? It does. Um, and I, later on, not in that post, but later on in my post, I also make the point that humanity itself is being self-defined by technology, that technology, right. that we aren't separate from it, that it's right. part and parcel of us 
and so our, our very humanity is being defined. But we are also part of a much larger story, that kind of a grand evolutionary story from the Big right. Bang, right. and that these things that we all find so not only interesting but vital, life, intelligence, mind, consciousness, and now technology are all examples of, of a larger class of things. Right. I would call extropic systems, and right. other people might have other names. And so, right. so, so, so we're part of a very big story going on that's expanding into the universe. And I think when we wrestle with questions about which technologies should we adopt, I think it's important that we maintain that longer-term view of where technology has come from and where it's going. Right. And that's not even to... Well, I mean, in addition to that, we can also go into issues about the meaning of our lives. And I think right. my suspicion is is that um, technology has a role in, in the meaning of life. And that's what I'm interested in is, is what is the meaning of technology. Right. right. And, of course, we see that going back. You speak of technology helping to define what it is to be human itself. And this is something that is a recurrent theme in your work and it's mm-hmm. a current theme in, in important thinking and we can see this we go back to human epics of development or evolution itself from foraging to horticultural to agrarian to industrial to informational mm-hmm. and at each of those epics technology was whether recognized or not really central to how human beings define themselves and part of how they define spirit, if they had such a conception, part of how they define their interactions, part of how they define their meaning mm-hmm. on Earth. And so it's just now becoming the sort of central role of technology in doing all of that. It's just now becoming sort of self-conscious. It's not that just now technology is starting to do this stuff. It's that just now we're starting to recognize how it's always done this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And, I mean... Yeah, one is we become conscious of technology sort of at the very moment when it's slightly becoming conscious of itself. Right. And that's, and, that's right. the next big step. For right. Huxley said that in humans, evolution became conscious of itself. Right. And that's sort of the first step to artifacts of humans becoming conscious, possibly, right. and then becoming conscious of themselves. Right. And that's the whole topic we'll get into as we go on, which is the whole relation of technology to consciousness and whether consciousness can, in fact, be, you know, quote, downloaded uh, into artifacts, into right. technology. Because right. you've got so many interesting points on that. Finishing this blog, you say everything we find interesting and good in the cosmos, living organisms, civilization, communities, intelligence, evolution itself, has a strong hand of entropy running through it. While the cosmic background slips away to its eternal rest, the energy coursing through these systems flings forward an unbroken sequence of ever-unlikely existences. By the normal calculus of entropy, the appearance of both kangaroos and 747s should be impossible, and yet their unlikely existences and the surprising appearance of any extropic organization that stands upright in the stream of heat death serves as a platform for yet newer ways to continue the story of unlikely possibilities. Alfred North Whitehead said there was sort of one primordial fact of the universe, and that was, quote, its undeniable advance into creative novelty. 
Mm-hmm. So that speaks against entropy and for these extropic systems that you're talking about. Exactly. Our global technium is the current stage of the story. It is the mythic midpoint between a cascade of extropic organization reaching back to the genesis of the universe and forward to an unseen next. Here I'm certainly agreeing with you again that the technium technology goes all the way up and all the way down. If we follow the trajectory of this very long continuum, it suggests not only a future, but a destiny as well. Is a course in which we humans will play a role, but we are still determining our exact role. At every stage in this long continuum, choices are expanded, and freedom to be is enlarged. That's also quite a stunning view. And very optimistic. <laughs> very up. Yeah, it is. And to that extent, probably also a little bit outside of uh, mainstream. Yes. A little bit, <laughs> bit maverick shot, but I think it holds true. And I think we see it in human evolution as well, including present-day development. Developmental psychologists see human development occurring in stages or waves, and each stage is marked by an increase in freedom, an increase in the number of degrees, the number of perspectives that a human being can take. So it goes from being able to take just a first-person perspective and being very narcissistic to being able to take a second-person perspective and being ethnocentric mm-hmm. to being able to take a third-person perspective and be world-centric. And each of those stages is an increase in freedom, an increase in consciousness, an increase in care, increase in capacity for love. Right. So, so what I'm kind of focusing on is, is there a fourth-person perspective? Yes, and I think that's where we're sort of headed right now. Yeah. And uh, uh, what, what that means. I think that's exactly right. And it's a meta perspective towards all the perspectives that have come so far. Right. And so that's why we're doing just what we're doing now, which is sitting here and saying, what does this mean? And as you also point out in several of these blogs, probably one of the defining questions of the next century so defining it's likely to become available on evening news is what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Because even reflecting on something like that, that was you know taken as previously such a simple question as to hardly be worth asking, yeah. has because of the increasing advances of the technium started to change the very nature of, of humanity itself, what it means to be human, what the possibilities are. Right. Uh, well, I mean, well, it hasn't started. I mean, it has all along. We've been yeah. redefining ourselves, and all that's happening is we're a little more conscious that we're now redefining ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And so it's sort of more self-conscious redefinition. And that, coincidentally, sort of happens at the moment when basically we're confronting other consciousness. Right. And so it becomes very perplexing and becomes very trying to us because suddenly – Several things happen. One is we realize, oh my gosh, we've always been redefining ourselves. Oh my gosh, we're now conscious of redefining ourselves. We have a new responsibility. And then thirdly, oh my gosh, there's other consciousness involved. Right. And so it's like, what do we want to be? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, not only who are we, but what do we want to be who we are? And so all these things are sort of happening, and that makes this time to be alive an incredibly amazing moment and and there aren't too many times in the history of a civilization when they 
when they go through this. And so here we are. Yeah, alive right now. I think that's exactly right. And it's, I mean, if you look at even the essential basic chunked technological eras that go from foraging to horticultural to agrarian to industrial to informational, that's only five major, major shifts in techno-economic modes. Right. And for us to be going through one of those right now is astonishing and, right, right. again, incredibly rare. And it does involve, as you perceptively pointed out, the emergence on an increasing scale of a fourth-person perspective, of a meta-perspective on all of these things that have come prior. And that perspective is being driven especially by the technium, especially by technological advances right. in science. And, and so that's why the work you're doing and the roles that you've played is sort of you know, right at the central nexus of all of these issues, just, which is why it's such a fascinating trail of, of ideas that you leave behind you, let's, let us say. And also this, this notion then that the last sentence in this blog, at every stage in this long continuum, choices are expanded and freedom to be is enlarged, is a particular reading or interpretation of evolution as well, and also then impacts on our definition or notions or ideas about God. And the next blog that I want to read from goes directly to that and is called The Evolutionary Mind of God. And I'd like to read a fair amount of this and then discuss as we go along because these are all, I think, just absolutely crucial issues and will increasingly come to be asked and discussed in the common culture and not just something for philosophers or you know, professional elite thinkers to get into. And let me also kind of preface reading some of this by saying that, you know, in my own view, we have these three general perspectives or dimensions that are available to human beings. The first person, which is the person who is speaking, uh, second person, which is the person who's being spoken to, and the third person, which is the person or thing being spoken about. And because of that, in the emergence of this fourth person perspective, we can look at anything through those three perspectives. And I think those three perspectives are all real, are all equally important, and none of them can be reduced to the others. And so we need to sort of keep that in mind as we approach any topic. And it's true, I think, for spirituality as well. There's a third-person approach to God, which sees God as a third-person objective entity like the great web of life or the whole universe as a system or a substance, indeed very much like pantheism. And that is one of the main topics of this blog. There's also a second-person approach to spirit, and that's sort of more common in theistic traditions, and that's to imagine that what if the actual creator, designer of this extraordinary system, this Gaia, this great web of life, this extraordinary universe, what if the creator of that was alive and sitting in the chair right in front of you, that there was an actual second-person embodiment or manifestation of spirit and that second person would of course be described in you or thou terms and spirituality would be a case of I thou relationship then and then there's also a possibility of first person relationship to spirituality and this would define God or spirit in first person terms in other words I or I amness or 
I am that I am, or the supreme identity, the Sufis call it, or Buddha nature, Buddha mind, and actually sees spirit as the pure consciousness or pure awareness, the I that is aware of everything that's arising, and everything that's arising is but a manifestation of this one mind. And so there are all the three of these perspectives that can be taken on any event, and I think also can be taken on spirituality. So one of the things we're doing here in this blog is discussing some of the objective aspects of spirituality and discussing it in third-person terms, it terms. And so I sort of with that prologue, I mean, does that make sense, just kind of a general... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think the thing about third, second, first, and even fourth perspectives yeah. is, is that while we talk about it, we have to sort of talk about it in one person, but it's very possible and likely that all three perspectives are true. Right. And so it's, you can put on your set of glasses, and so we can talk about can have, you know, the spiritual from the first person, while the second, third, and fourth are also true. And right. So what's interesting about if we take the extension of kind of this evolutionary, extropic sense of the unfolding universe as a, you know, as a divine act, then the interesting question, which I, your intro is sort of hinting at, is what would happen if you took that in a first-person view? Right. And well, I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to explore and that we're doing sort of inadvertently is to say I am technology. Right. In other words, if this is a divine force, then, then I am technology. I, I, I am part of this thrust. And in that sense, you can say, well, you're demeaning yourself because you're thinking of yourself as a machine. And I'm thinking, no, I'm elevating myself, right. I'm <laughs> myself as a machine. And that basically it's, it's, you know, it's kind of enlarging the circle of empathy because I'm saying the difference between me and the machine is not as much as as, as we think. We, you know, we have a little bit of kind of um, parochial thinking right at this moment because machines are kind of very still very primitive, but eventually we won't. Right. And I think that if we make that switch and to say, you know, I am the stream, I am, I am this extropic force right. unfolding, I think that does, again, that does, several things in reorienting our view of what technology means in the world. And, uh, you know, if, if thinking of technology as something that is a pulse of goodness in the universe is certainly not mainstream, thinking of ourselves right. as that is even further away, and we have a long way to go before... Anyone before there's uh, a church larger than one here. (laughs) (laughs) But it does make it if we look at technology as being, among other things, artifacts that are objective and are created by any sentient being. So the technium uh, artifact includes a bird's nest, an anthill. Yeah. Um, any uh, you know coral reefs, any things yeah. created by sentient beings that are third person objects. Right, but I don't. I, I want to say that that yeah, yeah, that's the beginning. But also, I want to make sure that that we all understand that that technology is not just artifacts, Understood. objects. That they're methods and intangibles. It's that it's actually technology is a type of structured change. It's a method of learning. It's a type of thinking in the broadest sense of the word. Right. And, and so we tend to, to identify them as, as objective objects 
and they are objective, but they're not always objects. Exactly. And there's a, in a sense, a quote ontology, a realness to technology, whether it appears in first, second, or third person right. perspective. But it also then, in terms of third-person perspective, in just even a traditional Christian view that would see the world as the body of Christ, or mm-hmm. then technology can indeed be viewed as part of the body of spirit and yeah. a particular communication, a particular systems right. interaction, a particular component of spirit itself. Right, yeah. So, 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 so if you kind of, you know, crudely reduce that saying, well, technology is the body of God. Right. You, you wouldn't be too far off, but man, you're, you, you, you know, th- th- this is not commonly understood because exactly. most people say, well, technology is the body of the devil. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think what we, we haven't talked about, which is the normal objections about, you know, where do the, the you know, the evils of, of technology, where do they fit into this little schema? And, right. um, you know, that, that that's the common objection. However, you know that's in parallel to the to the just the general question of the, the role of evil in in the world. It, well, yes, and it does. Part of what we'll get into when we get into this blog is just that: is discuss the ways we can talk about evil in this world. Right. And one of the things that a broad-based pantheism has done mm-hmm. as one of the three general approaches to thinking about spirit that you outline here. One of the things that pantheism has at least forced thinkers to consider is the possibility that both good and evil are somehow part of an all-embracing one. Right. And therefore, things that had previously thought to be evil, in some case, like technology, are in fact expressions of a deeper good. Right. And that it's up to humanity to make those distinctions as to whether technology is used for good or for evil, and it's not something inherent in technology itself to be inherently evil or inherently bad or inherently alienating. And I think that's a big change in how the modern and postmodern world has been able to look at technology. Yeah, well, you know, uh, on this point, I I would like to to push that a little bit because I'm actually making a stronger statement. I think the common stance that technology is neutral, I think is a little wrong. We wouldn't say, well, life is neutral. Right. We would say life is good. Right. We don't, we don't say mind is you know, neutral. neutral. But we, yeah. we, mind is good. I, yeah. I, I'm saying something a little bit stronger. I, I'm saying technology is good. I'm saying it's inherently right. good. Got that, it. That, that the more technology we have, the better. And so just as we say the more life there is, the better. So there, there are obviously there are aspects of natural biology and, and stuff that you know causes harm, uh, you know AIDS virus, right. whatever it is that is present. And so there are examples of harm, and there's examples of reduction of freedom and reduction of options in nature. But we say life is good, and I right. think the same thing. So, so I wanted I wanted to Got it. To, to stress that this not just neutral, it's actually inherently good. Yeah, and I think that is a statement that holds up across different perspectives. So it, it's, it holds true not just for humans, it holds true for the technium in general, which goes all the way down, which goes all the way back to the Big Bang. And the technium is simply one way of looking at, one perspective, one dimension of this totality of unfolding being. Right. 
and that in itself is good. Right. And I'm totally with you on that, and and it's as true for um, birds and building bird nests as humans uh, building computers. Right. And it's a fundamental goodness about it that is part of the essential fundamental goodness of manifestation, we could say. Right. So now that we get to thinking about spirit and ways to think about God, and we think about it first, second, and third person, think about it as all of those encapsulated in the emerging fourth person perspective. But you touch on several of these uh, important issues, so I want to just jump in and read some of these. The evolutionary mind of God. Because first we come to the difficulties of representing God or spirit in intellectual terms. There is no human-created description of God that is without contradiction. Any minimal definition of God we can conjure up entails multiple infinities, such as omnipotence, omniscience, or eternal existence. However, when a being is infinite in all directions, the infinitudes cross and begin to contradict each other. The schoolyard riddle that asks if God could make a stone so heavy he can't lift it is just one simple case of how infinite capacity is muddled when one's infinitudes are pitted against each other. The many other inherent paradoxes of God pointed out by theologians usually rest in these battling infinite dimensions. How can a being be infinitely just and infinitely merciful? How can it be boundlessly omniscient and free-willed? And if God is defined as less than infinite, even in a few dimensions, then it becomes the God few want to honor, since humans, even in our lesser minds, can imagine a greater God, one who is infinite in all directions, even though this God as defined is full of contradictions. This discussion takes God at its most naked and leaves out the extra burdens of religious clothing. But that is a difficulty in trying to have a finite mind define a multitude of infinities. So as you point out here, God you know, cannot be all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. Or, for example, he wouldn't allow Auschwitz. He can be two of those three. He can be all-knowing and all-powerful if he's not all-good. Or he can be all-good and all-powerful if he's not all-knowing. But as soon as you acknowledge all three, you have contradictions. And so you continue, but any description of the universe without God and this is to take the second major stance that you discuss here. The first is the general theistic stance and the contradictions in it. But the second major stance, any description of the universe without God is also compromised with contradictions. How does existence begin with no beginning? If the universe is deterministic, what determines its first motion? In a field of infinity, why is anything at all finite? And so these contradictions, of course, are gleefully overlooked by atheists. Then you state one is left with the conclusion that both God and no God are impossible, at least are limited human minds. Both possibilities could, of course, simply be beyond human comprehension, and their inherent contradictions, so apparent to us, could be resolved by intellects greater than ours. Indeed, some theists who assert the reality of God counter contradictions by claiming God is ineffable, that is unknowable by us and therefore has no definition. This seems like a cop-out to the atheists who assert that the reality of no God is at least definable. Atheists counter the contradictions in their own view by claiming our ignorance and inabilities can be overcome via science. 
In a recent blaze of publicity and attention, atheists have come out of the shadows in contemporary culture and are denouncing religion of gods and promoting the superior perspective of no god as a view that should appeal to the modern and technologically oriented. And it has. Nerds and techies find the scientific approach of current atheism extremely appealing. And that's, of course, discussing uh, Hawkins and Sam Harris, uh, Chris Hutchinson, and so on. But recently, a third way of imagining the ground of being has emerged, which is also very appealing to techies. It stems from one of the most ancient theologies, but this ancient orientation is being rejuvenated by scientific and technological understandings. Judged from my own discussions with educated and rational people, this third view is more appealing to them than the blankness of atheism, and I suspect in the long run, more likely to gain allegiance of those who can't make that leap into a belief of God. This new third way is a type of pantheism. The orthodox definition of God, God transcends the universe. The universe in this view is a creation issuing from God. The universe has the same relation to God as a story or painting would to us. As authors, we transcend our masterpiece. While the universe reflects the nature of its creator, it is decidedly other. The furthest the two, creator and creation, might be entwined is into a duality like a body and soul. We might say the author was the soul of the work. In Augustine's metaphor from the 4th century, the universe is the body for God's soul. In atheism, there is, of course, no duality. The universe simply is. But pantheism, at least in its revived form, offers a concept of godhood with unity. There are many historical varieties of pantheism, but most could fairly be summed up in a literal translation and description, all God. Creation and God are not separate. All is one. The philosophers of pantheism like to say that rather than God transcending the universe, God is eminent in the universe. Mystics since the dawn of consciousness have claimed to be awakened to the startling fact that since the universe is God, each of us contains God, or even more shocking, is God. God is everywhere we look. And so this is indeed a startling third alternative to the other two and is indeed starting to catch on. Uh, thoughts on that, reflections on that? Well, um, you know, I, I think I'm an amateur philosopher. I'm an amateur <laughs> theologian. So, you know, listening to myself here, I, I realize that there's probably a lot more to, to say about it. But I, I, I think as a rough approximation yeah. that this is what's happening. I, I yeah. think there is a, I mean, first of all, one of the things that's really true about this domain that we're in is that there's a lot of baggage of centuries that's carried forth with some of these words. And so right. the word pantheism, you know, it carries a lot of weight from former uses of it. And so I, I suspect that, you know, if it were to catch on, it would catch on by a different name. It would be recast in more contemporary vocabulary. And that's, right. in effect, what I'm trying to do is, is that I'm trying to infuse some of the thinking about these very big questions with the new vocabulary around science and technology. Right. Um, because I believe that they have, they have far, you know, belief in science, I, have, I think, has far more in common than the normal debates would allow them to have 
Right. And I think part of our inability to imagine and having an overlap or maybe even uh, being in parallel is because we don't have a sufficient vocabulary. And so this is sort of an attempt to to frame it in a unified set of metaphors. And, you know, I welcome I, – I, it's a first step. I, right. I'm, I'm not going to convince anybody with, with that argument. I, uh, I, I think people – far more versed in this stuff have to make something that's a little bit more emotional and, and have more of a narrative. But I think that I see this, I, I see us headed, us meaning collectively as a society, yes. headed in the direction of, of, of having this conversation in, in these terms. So, you know, uh, I don't know where in, in the kind of the world of the religious you know, they're not having this conversation, and yeah. I don't think the world of scientists are having this conversation either. Right. But I think we could have that conversation. Yeah, so do I. And the ones that are having this particular type of conversation are ones that are scientifically oriented, in, in my experience, but that have had direct spiritual experience. Mm-hmm and know that these type of some sort of spiritual flavor makes absolute sense for the universe and in fact seems just almost impossible to deny and that's what that tends to be the conviction that spiritual experiences convey and my understanding is that when you were 27 you had just that type of experience isn't that right yes that's true can we talk a little bit about that? It was, uh, sure, um, sure. Yeah, you were um, in one of your earth-traveling vagabond modes and, um, yeah. and had uh, sort of run out of money and ended up sleeping in what was purported to be the um, place of Christ's crucifixion. Right. And as you awoke that morning, had a very profound experience that has not only stayed with you, but been very a crucial component of your of your own outlook on life. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I went to Asia instead of going to college, and I, um, as a photographer, self-designated photographer, recording the vanishing traditions of Asia, I spent a lot of time at religious ceremonies uh, where most of the color is, so to speak, and, you know, you know went to Zen temples, went to Buddhist Retreats went to the Hindu Kumela, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Valley of Gods and Kulu. I mean, I was, I, I Tibet. I've been everywhere, and so I'd gone to Jerusalem with the same attitude, the same perspective of of, uh, of there headed there for Easter, and so it was it was another photo opportunity. Right. And um, unexpectedly, I had a religious conversion on Easter morning. And I think the uh, – I was not – I mean, I wasn't looking for it, which is one indication to me that it was probably real. And two, funnily, uh, you know, once I had it, it, it didn't change my life immediately. And that was another curious aspect because I'd always thought that if it came, I would, I would instantly be transformed. And I, I think thirdly, this wasn't a matter of – I mean – I'm a very intellectual person, you know, kind of brainy, and so what, what was surprising to me was sort of the way in which this was not a matter of 
I mean, it was my brain that sort of had to finally acknowledge this. Yeah. And that was the last holdout was, and, and it did not come through logic. It was not a logical thing. I mean, to, right. to believe that Jesus Christ was God is not, you don't get there only by logic. And, right. But yet I still had to, uh, my brain still had to, to, to make that journey. And so right. that experience, again, of a sort of, of a type of, of knowledge mm-hmm. that is not transmittable by falsifiable hypothesis. Right. Yet still has to, if it's real, has to, has, has to be subjected to that. I think, you know, has retained because it was an experiential thing. So, so you know the the foundation of Western science is actually based on the idea that when we can doubt everything else, this is Cartesian's idea. When we can doubt everything else, we have to start with the idea of the one thing we can't doubt, right? Which is our own existence. So because I am doubting, because I doubt, therefore I know that there's an I. Right. The phrase should really be I I doubt, therefore I am. Right. But that that, that that's sort of confusing in English. And right. so um, it's because I'm skeptical of all these things, and that I know that there's something there that's skeptical, and that, therefore, the one thing I can't doubt is the fact that there's somebody who's skeptic. That right. there's a, that there's, and, and so that experiential center, uh, 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 that, you know, my experience of faith is what I rest upon. And right. um, it seemed to me that it's as valid as the experience of no god right and so you know that has made me aware mostly of different world perspectives that right. that um i i have a, a sympathy for the other and the other views because this view is in certain places a minority view other places of course is a majority view right but i am aware of the fact that there are things like world views that are full of assumptions and uh, usually unexamined. And so, if anything, I've made it a practice to examine my assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, it follows the contours of spiritual experience as the mystics report it yeah. um, the world over. Yeah. And, it's ta- and that's clearly also a, a first person kind of knowledge. You're not knowing right. it in a third-person, stand-aside, objective, kind of descriptive, right. uh, falsifiable type of knowledge, but as a first-person, direct, immediate, mm-hmm. existentially revealed consciousness, therefore being. And I can deny, I can doubt everything else out there. I can doubt my senses. I can doubt even images in my mind, but I can't doubt that which is aware of those things. Right. And And so that is really kind of a form of Western Vedanta, and where the Atman, the pure witness in a human, is said to be one with Brahman, one with mm-hmm. the absolute ground of all being, right. and known in a direct, first-person, immediate fashion. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of knowledge that is unfortunately taken to be, you know, not only outside of science, but mm-hmm. just not scientific, just anti-scientific right, right. even. And that's one of the really unfortunate things that comes with that type of spirituality and I think is also one of the important types of spirituality that doesn't, as often as it should, get talked about, 
in these discussions of will spiritual machines come into existence? Can human beings, you know, create spiritual machines by 2100? Will we yeah. down that kind of thing? Because what generally is meant by spiritual there is just conscious. And it doesn't take into account at least these two dramatically different forms of consciousness. One's sort of relative, small, small mind, finite consciousness, and the other being, you know, a big mind, absolute, supreme identity Mm -hmm. consciousness. And if we're going to download humanity into machines, I'm going to make sure at least both of those kinds of knowledge get on the table for getting downloaded. Right.